Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. We're going to start out with a, an announcement about DOS Boat, like the actual boat DOS Boat. V1, you could call it. And I don't mean the show DOS Boat, I mean the physical vessel, the boat. Um, we are auctioning off DOS Boat and other cool items in order to, to close the final gap for our land access initiative project, which Cal will now explain. Uh, land access initiative, right? So we took all the profits from Renella Putella's campaign merchandise that everybody bought, thank you, and now we're taking your hard-earned money and our hard-earned money, and we're, we're giving it to uh, the High Peaks Alliance outside of Kingsfield, Maine, for a property that uh, will provide more hunting and fishing for America. It's an access project. Like, can you name the thing? Yeah, it's called Shiloh Pond. And Shiloh Pond is, uh, you know, around here we'd call it a lake. Um, and uh, it's uh, there's an old logging road that you walk down for about five minutes to get to the lake. So right now it's foot access only. Um, and it's 33 feet deep, which is really bizarre. Not that big of a, of a pond. That's deeper than the lake I grew up on. Yeah, it's wild. 66 acre lake. 20 feet deep. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful little spot and, uh, it has been, um, publicly accessible for generations, but on private land. 
and now that private land is for sale. Oh, yeah. And the you know the folks around Kingsfield, uh, and particularly this fellow uh, Brent West of uh, the High Peaks Alliance, have really, really gotten after trying to secure this piece of property uh, and no longer have it be private. So it'll be a piece of public ground available for everybody. in perpetuity. Available in perpetuity with hunting and fishing being part of the access or part of the management plan for the property in perpetuity as well. Yeah. Cal has been, um, we were soliciting suggestions for a land access initiative project and Cal waited through quite a few submissions and actually went out and flew out firsthand to investigate. Yes. And and had kind to of waited, people in the waited around, smelled around, poked around, met people, visited the place. Yeah, went to the like, checked it out, dipped my toes in the water, did an investigative trip, came back, thumbs up. This is what we're doing. We got a little chunk of change to go, so we're like, how are we going to raise this money? We're going to raise this money by selling, auctioning off, Das boat. So go watch, go on YouTube on the Meat Eater channel on YouTube, and you can watch the whole damn Das Boat show. It's a YouTube series. That boat. So he started out, bought a boat on Craigslist, sight unseen, an old aluminum center console fishing boat, and then did massive modifications to said boat. Reinforced the entire thing, beefed up the trailer, put a brand spickety new Honda. Is that got a 30 or 40 on it? 40. Put a Honda 40, so this is like a low hours, brand new Honda 40 four-stroke on the back of this thing. It has a genuine original Ed Anderson painting that's about how long? Six feet. A six-foot long Ed Anderson original painting on the boat. It is rigged out. It's just like entirely rigged out. Just get into the electronics package. Uh, so we should note is a 16 foot V hole Alumacraft from 1989 is, is just the hole. Uh, the Honda four stroke outboard engine features all sorts of awesome stuff that I probably don't need to go into, but it is a highly sought after, um, premium outboard motor, uh, from Honda. Plus it's got a Minn Kota Ultrex removable bow-mounted trolling motor with 80 pounds of thrust, which is uh, probably equivalent to the uh, outboard engine I own. Um, Built-in sonar capability and iPilot link GPS with autopilot and spot lock, which um, if you aren't familiar, that means you can actually go out and fish by yourself. Yeah. No friends necessary. Highly accessorized. Yes. Um... We got a casting platform that I built. Uh, we have a self-stabilizing removable uh, charcoal grill added by Chef Jesse Griffiths. Um, JT Van Zant did some fishing on there. This this is a boat full of character, and at this point, it is an absolute fishing machine too. Yeah. So we did all the work. We put the thing together, and all the money. All the money goes to public access. It goes to a specific public access project that you can go, like Cal did, you can go sniff it and dip your toes into it. If you draw a moose tag, it probably wouldn't be a waste of time 
to go out there and uh, make some annoying cow out, cow moose calls. Check that spot out. <laughs> yeah. Um, we got a couple other things to to cover us on our on our expenses here. I have, I am auctioning off. I've donated to the land access project, um, and it's up for sale now. A Weatherby Mark Five, left handed Mark Five. Six five by three hundred caliber. Accompanying this rifle is a Euro mount of a coos deer that I shot with the rifle. So you get the gun and the skull and antlers of a deer I shot with it. And this rifle's been on. This, this rifle's also been on episodes of the Meat Eater TV show. Which, if you're ever going to get a secondhand rifle, if you think about it, it should always come with proof yeah. that the thing works. A lot of places send you a little target, you know, with some holes in it to to show. This comes with the damn dead, dead deer. So you can get that at auction. What else we got, Cal? Yanni's uh, got stuff he threw in. Yanni's literally pulling things off of his back, including his backpack, all the things that brought him good luck from the 2019 season. Um, I am donating a... Incredibly awesome, powerful, clean, quiet, steel, MSA 220 electric chainsaw. Uh, that is my personal chainsaw, and, and it's fantastic. Low hours. Low hours. Um, truck chainsaw. And I'm even going to write uh, a personalized inscription to whoever buys this thing. Uh, the folks at Steel are throwing in an entire uh, personal protection equipment package. No, that's nice. With chaps and gloves and eye pro and uh, helmet uh, and a few other goodies in there for you. Uh, I am going to pass along some excellent knowledge in the form of an entirely synthetic fish, which is just a fantastic book on uh, wildlife management uh, centered around the rainbow trout and the and history of the rainbow presumably trout. Presumably you'll sign this book over to the purchaser. Yes, yes. The, um, but it'll be a good thing to get your conservation library started. And off of my own back is my very first and most well-worn uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers public land owner t-shirt that um, has, uh, has been through all the trials and tribulations of the, uh, the restart of the Sagebrush Rebellion and uh, being all sorts of pro-public land. so uh, We photographed all this stuff. When they photograph your shirt, I feel like on the, when you go online to see all the auction items, including the big, like there's a great spread on Das Boat. Like you can really dig in. But they should put the little stink lines and everything coming <laughs> off the T-shirt. <laughs> they should. Uh, so you can go to, go to meateater.com and up in the banner, somewhere around there, thereabouts, you will find our land access initiative auction, which we're using to close the gap, to, to finish up the gap and finish off the project of more better hunting and fishing for America. Go and do this. Yeah, and, and bid. Make a bid. We were just going to do the boat, and they were like, hey, have a, I mean, how many, only one dude can buy a boat. One person can buy a boat. So we added all this other stuff. Go in there and get bidding. So we gotta get the, we, we gotta finish this thing up. Yeah, there's a deadline. Were, there's a deadline coming up where this sale is gonna go through, and we need to get in there and get it taken care of. So the auction is only open for a week. We gotta close her out. Selfishly, you're gonna get amazing gear that all your friends are gonna be very jealous of because it already comes with a, a bunch of good luck stories. Um, but 
not selfishly, you're going to be also getting like the warm, fuzzy feeling of making a difference by securing public ground in perpetuity in a spot that has zero public ground. Yeah. And to guarantee that this is, Cal can't say this, but for me, to guarantee that this is not motivated personally, I have taken a personal pledge, a vow to not personally hunt or to not personally hunt or fish this property. I've already fished it, but that's called due diligence. I might go and watch someone do it. I might go and say how they're doing it wrong or whatever. (laughs) I would eat fish from it, but I will not personally hunt or fish this property. This is not lining my own pockets with sweet spots on the other side of the continent. Yeah, and we don't want to stop here either. So this this is uh, a great start. It's a great spot. There's many of these high-value small parcels uh, around, and we want to know about them. So Yeah, and you know what you could do? We talked about this the other day. A, a reasonable move would be to buy DOS boat, take the engine and all the electronics, get a torch, cut out the painting, hang that on the wall of your bar, and then just be like, and you boys can keep the rest. But, you know, you probably want the whole thing. But that in and of itself would be of extraordinary value extraordinary value you're you're coming out ahead so yeah we want a boatload of cash for dos boat so don't you know get all uh penny pincher on it and look up what everything costs and then stop bidding once it gets there um this is a good deal even at full value because you're making a heck of a contribution for untold generations of folks who want to go outside yeah the good people of maine which are, de facto, good people of the United States of America, depend on you. Now, on to our interview with Tom Brokaw. All right, everyone, we're on um, Tom Brokaw's back porch along a beautiful stretch of creek in Montana, and... Mr. Brokaw came to us by way of Tom McGuane, a past guest. And I believe you also used to spend time mountain climbing with Yvonne Chouinard, who's been on this show. How did you, uh, how did you become to be friends with McGuane? Well, I've known about Tom because generationally we're about the same. And then there was that period of time when he was living in uh, – Kibiskane and other areas where he was notorious. And he, they loved him at Esquire magazine because they could write an article about him about every week. And it was his now brother-in-law, Jimmy, was there and uh, a lot of other characters. And uh, so I was, from a distance, very intrigued by them. And we had a lot of common interests. <clears throat> but as I told him later, I didn't want to get involved with you because I would not have survived <laughs> the way you guys were living. It just wouldn't have worked for me. Uh, I mean, he was writing this early stuff, you know, and uh, and he was my generation, frankly. So uh, that's how I first knew of him. And then when we came out here, which is a step back, I, I got interested in Montana because they came out to do a speech in northern Montana. And then Meredith and I were doing a lot of backpacking at the time in California and Colorado and so on. And we asked to be set up with a, a backpack trip. And we went across scapegoat wilderness early June and it was a tough tough time but we were really taken with Montana so uh, I was looking around for some place that 
we were either going to do the East Coast and become sailors or we were going to come to the West and, and become fly fishermen and horse people. And we decided to come here. And I went down to the West Boulder where we had a prospect of a place that we were going to buy. And I was invited over by Tom to just have a cup of coffee. I'd never met him before. And uh, it was love at first sight, as we both say. Uh, you know, we really had a lot of shared values and interests and and kind of a quirky sense of humor. And it's uh, it's a real brotherhood. When I was reading about uh, how you grew up in very much in small town, South Dakota, and around, you know, I guess pretty what would now be deemed conservative values and like work ethics but then later in life you kind of fell in with sort of these uh like some of the libertines you know some fast living people did you ever did you often feel there to be like a a difficult transition for you to jump from these very very rural america to these kind of fast living you know well, People fast who living are born is a and bred a, by showbiz. Yeah, I wouldn't quite call it fast living. I always wanted bright lights, big city when I was growing up. You did, uh, yeah. Uh, I was always looking over the horizon. I was, int- I was a, you know, all my friends and my family, especially, said I was pretty precocious about what was going on in the world, and I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, so that was my destination. And then what happened was I got to be a part of it in a pretty elevated way, but when I circled back to South Dakota, both from a geographical and from a cultural point of view, I didn't want to let go of that. I wanted, I knew that it had shaped who I am and I wanted to uh, retain that as part of who I am. You know, we brought uh, Spencer Newharth, who's sitting next to me here, for two reasons. So you guys can do the um, South Dakota conversation, right? which I'd like you to have, where you go like, oh, I'm from there. <laughs> And then, too, because so if you can imagine if you had Spencer's voice, how your career would have been <laughs> even better. Well, people often say to me, uh, A, how did you get involved in the business? B, where'd that voice come from? And I said, they had a special at Sears one year. And I was able to get the voice. <laughs> and, uh, that's how it worked out. But I was a talkative kid early, and I had an enormous curiosity. There's a famous story in our family. We were living on an army base during World War II, and I was three or I think three years old when this happened. My mother had to go into the post office. She said, "Stay here, Tommy. I'm going to. No, I am going with you." And I, she said, "No, I want you to." I said, "No, I got to go with you." She said, "Why do you have to? Why do you want to go with me?" I said, "I've never seen the floor in there," so I've always thought. That was the foundation of who I am. I wanted to see what was going on on the other side of someplace. You know, I got kind of carried away. I've, you know, I've been in uh, Kathmandu and all over the world, China during the revolution, to Russia, the far, far eastern part of Russia, all over Africa, all over South America. Uh, and it's always been rewarding. And I always felt this is who I am. I'm a bigger Tom Brokaw fan than I think most 28-year-olds because (laughs) I grew up 30 miles from where you went to high school. I went to the same college as you. Uh, So, like, I I love the Tom Brokaw story. But I'm especially interested in the Army base of Igloo that you spent a few years on. That is, like, one of the strangest places that you could probably grow up in, like, a developed country. Tell us about Igloo, like, how it came to be, how you ended up there, like, what that community was like. 
Well, my dad had a very, very difficult childhood, but he was uh, introduced to a caterpillar when he was about 19, and it turns out man and machine were meant for each other. He became a highly in demand uh, heavy equipment operator, and that's when America was getting ready for the war. Uh, he was in Kansas uh, building airports across Kansas for the long-distance bomber runs. Uh, there was a, a little uh, small arms factory that was being developed in New Brighton, Minnesota. He was part of that. But then as the war became more and more evident that it was going to happen, he wanted to get a place to park us, the family, my mother and, uh, and me. And then I had another brother on the way, and he heard about Igloo, South Dakota. And so we drove through the night. I'll never forget it. I had my face pasted to the windows because the Black Hills were not very populated in that day. And, and uh, we had mountain lion running alongside of us for a while. There were deer and, you know, and everything everywhere. And then the sun came up on this God-forbidden place <laughs> in South Dakota called Igloo. And it was all sagebrush, rattlesnakes, uh, no water to speak of except sloughs. And my dad said to my mother, we're going home. And she said, no, we've got to stay. And it turned out to be a fabulous experience for all of us. They had little tiny houses. I think the house that my parents put us in was not much larger than the room in which you now sit. And there were, by, there were five of us by the end. It was about 280 square feet. And my dad made the base go. I mean, everything that needed to be fixed, he could fix it. Everything that needed to be improved, he could improve it. So his draft came up, and he, he wanted to be a CB, so he went to Denver. And when, by the time he got to Denver, the base commander at Igloo said, send him back. We can't operate it without him. So we were there for the duration. There was an enormous uh, presence of uniformed American Army people who were part of the Ordnance Division of the Army. Then there were the civilians like us, and then on the edge of town— there were Italian prisoners of war. There were about 200 of them, and they wore these orange outfits. They were in a lightly guarded block. Where were they going to go? And they oh, did, these are guys <laughs> captured in the European theater and yeah. flown to South Dakota. And they and that happened, you know, that happened out here as well. I was, I was in, uh, where was I here in Montana one day? Oh, and I was in uh, Billings, and I saw a guy with a very sophisticated little Italian, uh, no, I was in Missoula, and uh, he had a very sophisticated little Italian food store. And I said, hmm, where did you come from? He said, oh, I've been here for a while. I said, came during the war, right? And he said, how'd you figure that out? And I said, because I lived in a place where there were other Italian, you were a prisoner of war. And he said, I was, and I decided to stay. That's <laughs> kind of lost in history. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, the story about these Italian prisoners of war, which is uh, you can now tell because the statute of limitations has run out, turns out they were also, to put it politely, servicing some of the war widows. <laughs> you know, they were at night visiting, uh, oh, is that as right? you will. Yeah, and there were some children that were born, uh, and it's never been tracked down, but it's that's part of people now write about that. So there, there we were in this town. I can still tell you the name Joe uh, was a police chief who lived across the street from us. He was a former uh, rodeo rider, and then down the street were the Silver Nails, and I remember seeing the Silver Nails' son going off to war in his Navy uniform. And it was very exciting to be a part of that. And out on the prairie, the igloos, the town was called igloo because they created these igloo-like things out of the earth, and that's where they stored ammo and other uh, high high-performing kind of detonation stuff shipped up from the Denver uh, Rocky Mountain 
uh, storage area because they knew the Germans knew about that. They wanted to get someplace else. So there were bombs going off and stuff going off all the time. And you know, it was a lot of fun to live there. Yeah, and it was selected, I believe, because of the ruralness of it, right? Like there's nothing else around oh, there. Oh, my God, it's the most re- – I've been back, and, you know, it still is as remote as they come. Rattlesnakes and sagebrush pretty much. And uh, But we stayed, and there was a community, a culture, you know, it all pulled together, all paying attention to what was going on. I had a very uh, saucy, sassy aunt who was my mother's sister. She was uh, kind of like – she was like my big sister. She was very young, but she flew Piper Cubs, and every guy in town wanted to date her. You know, so it was there was a lot going on. And then they typically they built an infrastructure. You know, they had a high school gym with a good basketball team. They had a movie theater. We had a parade grounds, a good shopping area, uh, and people were secure there. So it was uh, one of those amazing kind of developments in World War II that were lost to history after a while. Yeah, and the whole thing was gone, like, by the 60s, right? Like, it, the yeah. population peak of Igloo is probably, like, 1,600 or 1,800 people, and then by, yeah. like, 63, it was zero. Yeah, it's not what you would call destination. Right. <laughs> it was pretty tough stuff. I've shot antelope within eyesight of the Igloo, so it's it's that kind of country. Yeah, like it was. And uh, we used to see antelope a lot. Of uh, my, my dad, I remember, was not a hunter, but he had all these uh, – wonderful uh, weapons from a Swedish homesteader would raise it. We had a 30-30, which I still have, a Winchester, a 40-82, which I still have, and a little tiny uh, uh, saddle, 22. Anyhow, somebody persuaded him to go out and shoot a deer. I think he shot the oldest deer in the history of mankind. It was the <laughs> toughest. Most repug- we had one meal, and that was it. You know, he really, my parents thought, well, we've got meat supply. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, at one time, that's it. And now that area is, uh, you probably know, it's like very popular for doomsday preppers. Those 800 igloos, these big concrete structures built right. into the earth. Uh, all kinds of people that are, are planning for Armageddon. The survivors. Yeah, those you survivor. can buy those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can, can buy them. them. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, and some people have actually have bought them for that reason. They think Armageddon's coming. I've got a place to hide out. That'd be a good spot. I think though. Now my spot. tip to my tip to Armageddon preppers would be to not set up next to Armageddon preppers. <laughs> <laughs> like that would be who I'd be most suspicious of. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's eight hundred because they, they have a tendency to jump the gun. Sure, you know, I would want a a good prepping spot would be where there's no preppers. Yeah, I feel. Well, the the, the other the characterization of the place was the high school nickname, the team nickname. Were the rattlers, so that's how you know yeah. who they were. I mean, everybody, you know, uh, knew what they were up against. And we were there for, well, we didn't leave until forty six, forty seven, and then we moved to the center part of the state to another very, very barren area where they were building Port Randall Dam. Nothing had been done, and when we arrived, it was just the rolling hills and the Missouri River, part of the Yanktoni Sioux Reservation. Uh, so. That also was exciting for me because I loved exploration and I became very involved in the geology of the area and the people moved in from all over the country. A lot of them coming right out of the war, a lot of them from very poor circumstances and they were able to get good jobs. I have later been in touch with friends of mine and and I said, so when you got to Pickstown, what was the most surprising thing? They said we had indoor plumbing. Didn't have indoor plumbing before. (laughs) When you said that your dad had a rough 
upbringing or a rough childhood? In what way? Just po uh, poverty or more complicated than that? Not poverty, more complicated. The family, there were 10 children in the family. They had this big hotel, railroading hotel, which was not like, it was just a sweatshop. And he was the last of the group. He had a learning disability. He had a little difficulty reading, and nobody would kind of deal with that at all. So in the third grade, he dropped out, and he went to work for a Swedish homesteader who was living in the hotel, who was a jack-of-all-trades. Uh, you know, he had a team of horses, and he would drill wells, and he would move houses and that kind of thing. And my dad, at age 9, 8, 9, and 10, was working for him. He'd go off in the morning. They'd drop my dad headfirst down a well to retrieve the leathers that had been lost down there in that well, or to clear it out in some fashion. One, he told the story of it. He finally got the well set up. He got up, changed his clothes, and a little tiny pig ran down into the well. They dropped him down again headfirst <laughs> to grab the pig and bring it out. I mean, that's the kind of life that he had. He dropped out in third grade. Uh, he dropped out. He didn't go to. This, didn't finish third grade, no. Did he ever go? So he never went back. Oh, no, he went back all the time because he turned out to be a success story. I mean, he stunned everybody. Everybody had rejected everything that happened in town, whether he was around or not, he got blamed for. And he was aware of that. And when he was about 12 or 13, he bought a team of sorrel horses and he decorated them. And he was a genius at making things happen. So he planted gardens and mowed lawns and removed snow and delivered coal and did all that when he was a teenager. And his big goal was to, to make something of himself. He never, ever had a play date. He never, he never had a day in which he could just, on Sundays, when everybody's playing baseball, he was working. And his friends, who all admired him because he was so strong and capable, said to me later, we just couldn't get your dad to be one of us, you know, when it came to the weekend. Because he had a job to do. True for the rest of his life. You know, I was a high school jock. He rarely showed up at the games. I didn't mind that because he was home putting in a new acoustical tile in our dining room or he was fixing a car or he was buying something to, you know, to make into a trailer. Uh, he always had this other thing. And he had his fantastic sense of humor. Big, red-haired, good-looking guy. And he was wickedly funny uh, with me and with everybody. And he, he was quite heroic wherever he lived because they saw the evolution of this guy. The great story about him was he was the toughest kid in town. And no matter what happened in town, he was blamed for it. But he could be, he said, I could be 10 miles out of town, but something happened, I got blamed for it. But every farm kid would want to come to town and take him on to try to test themselves. He never lost a fight until uh, when he was about 18 or 19, a professional boxer, this was in the 30s, came through looking for some easy change. And uh, they all said, oh, Red Brokaw, that's your guy. The guy knocked my dad out in the first round. That was the last time <laughs> he ever went back into it again. Uh, we interviewed once the athlete, Bo Jackson, and he was remembering how everything that happened in his town. Blamed on him. Blamed on him. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's because I did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my, and my in my dad's case, it was the opposite. He didn't do it. I mean, he was too busy, frankly. Yeah. And the hotel was a sweatshop. You know, it was a sweatshop. He never knew which room he was going to be in. Whatever room was empty at night is the room that he would take. And it was unheated from the second floor up. So he had uh, a big buffalo robe that he slept under with his brother, 
who uh, got the hell out of there after two, not too long, went to California, went to the Coast Guard, then in the and the uh, uh, and then in the Navy. Was your dad baffled by your decision to pursue media? Because it seems like it would have been something that probably didn't occur to him. Well, it didn't occur to him, but he also knew of my vivid interest in what was going on, fueled in part because of my mother. My dad, uh, this is the great, great part of his story, is that my mother was part of an Irish-American family farming south of town, really quite beautiful, uh, skipped a grade, so she was in high school in 15. He saw her in a play, and he said to a friend of his, I'd like to get a date with her. And the guy said, well, if you do, then I'll get another date. So my dad drove out to the farm. He was four or five years older than her at that point. And he left the car running. It lights on. And the door opened. He went up and knocked on the door. He never met her. And he said, some of us are going to, finally, he said, some of us are going to the movie tomorrow night. Would you go with me? And she turned around and looked at her father. And her father said, he has a really good reputation. You know, he's honest, hardworking. I think he'll be okay. And so they went to the movie. And then over, my mother wanted to be a journalist. A lot of my interest came from her. She was always interested in what was going on in the world, reading about stuff. And uh, she couldn't afford to go to college. It was $100 a year. So she was working around town, a lot of stuff. And they continued to see each other. My dad was often racing over to Minnesota to work on a construction job of some kind or another once he learned how to operate the Caterpillar and and the construction company that hired him originally really tried to stay in touch with him because he was such a good hand, frankly. And then they decided they'd get married in 1938 uh, in the height of the Depression. And my mother and dad had a little tiny trailer. They put it behind the thing, and they had two goals in life, which was to do better every year and save every year at least $1,000. I mean, that's pretty unusual. No, yeah. credit, no credit cards. It was all cash. You know, uh, and they, um, he had this, as I say, this wonderful sense of humor, funny and, and, and robust. And my mother was a great audience for him. She would laugh easily, and, you know, and she was interested in books and other things. So it was a, a great yin and yang. And out of that, I came. You briefly touched on uh, growing up around Fort Randall Dam. And for our listeners that don't know, that's like – one of the biggest dams in North America, and it created Lake Francis Case on the Missouri River in South Dakota, and that's one of the biggest reservoirs in North America as well. It's hard to fathom seeing the completion of that, seeing the river change just like overnight. So can you talk about that, like seeing Fort Randall yeah, show up? I remember off? when we moved from Iglu in the far southwestern part of the state to this place where they were going to build a dam. <clears throat> uh, around Lake Agnes and Wagner in the middle of the Yanktoni Sioux Reservation. Uh, my dad took me out and stood, stood me on a, on a river bluff looking at the wild Missouri below. And he said, they're, at that time, it was going to be the largest dam of its kind in the world. And he said, they're going to do this. I was in the second grade at that point. He had caught on with a contractor that was building the highway to the site. And he had a really good job because he could do the whole thing. And then he wanted to go back and, and re-enlist in the government again, work for the Corps of Engineers because he had points built up with them. And the Corps was desperate to have him because he could do everything. From that moment on, three years later, there was a town of about 3,500 people. It had the most modern shopping center in 
South Dakota, had an unbelievable state-of-the-art high school, curb and gutter, bowling alley, movie theater, hospital, hotel, and, and enough room on one end of the town for about 200 trailer houses of workers who came in from all over America. And it went on for 10 years, 24-7, to build that dam. And they were the best years of anyone's life because they were all working class. I said to Meredith the other day, I remember the second Christmas that we were in Pickstown. Every kid in town got a chemistry set or a new gun or they got you know a new set of clothes or whatever because their families were making real money. These are all people who came out of the Depression and went through the war. And for the first time, they had spending money. First time. My other favorite story about it was there was a terrible hailstorm one day, and all the windows in our little house were knocked out. So Dad woke me up. He said, come on, we're going down to the shop to get this repaired. By the time we got to the shop, there must have been 45 guys in there, many of them white-collar engineers. And they organized themselves very quickly, and they set up this kind of assembly line, and they repaired all the windows on a Sunday afternoon. That's what they did. You know, it was all can-do. They didn't wait and say, when's the insurance guy come? We've got to get this done. And the, the can-do thing was phenomenal there. When you were involved with that big, not, not you personally, but being exposed to that big dam construction project, I think I often wonder about people involved in, in, in some of those. Was there, like, were there any people at that time questioning the idea that you would dam up rivers or would the conversations we're having now about the long term no. it was just no and, and this, this, like you were doing god's yeah, work you know, well, it was also they were great jobs for one thing and frankly the missouri was out of control constantly you know it flooded every year during what they called june rise it would come up because it was draining this whole part of the world we're in now and farming would go down and everything. And, you know, if you were to go back and do it again, you'd probably do it in a more efficient, you know, uh, way of preserving what you need to preserve. There were 18 different species of fish in the Missouri at that time. I mean, we'd go down to go fishing. We'd catch sturgeon, for example, you know, and paddlefish, all kinds of fish that were going on. And I don't think there was a day until it got really bad in the wintertime that I wasn't down on the river somewhere. Had an enormous rock collection of you know of rare arrowheads and other things like that. Uh, beautiful pieces of agate, uh, a chert, which is a really great chunk of very hard rock that the Indians used to make their tools out of. I collected, uh, and then there were people my age who came from these other places who had like-minded interests. It was a fantastic place to live for a young person. There was a one guy, town manager, a really great musician. So he would create every year a town musical. He would write the musical and we'd all go to the gym and there would be the musical and there were enough people in there who could play pianos or violins or whatever they needed and put on these shows. When I went back later and talked to my friends, I'd say to them, geez, he didn't seem to have my, they said, we didn't have anything. You know, one of my best friends, Jerry Brennison, he said his parents had a small trailer house. They built a kind of a, an attachment to it. He slept there in the middle of the wintertime in South Dakota. He said, never had an indoor plumbing. You know, this is the first time. This is great for us. One of my friends who's not doing well now 
grew up in North Carolina, and he and his mother rode the Greyhound bus all the way from North Carolina to South Dakota because his dad had gone out there to get his job. I think his dad was trying to leave the family behind, and the mother would not allow that to happen. And Don was an extraordinarily good athlete and funny and everything, so there was this mix. I had friends from Oklahoma. I knew all about Oklahoma. I had friends from Mississippi, so I learned about Ole Miss really early on, about you know the loyalty that everybody has to that. It was a mix unlike anything else in my age group uh, rooted in South Dakota. Now, you're a, a worldly man, obviously, um, but I think South Dakota has a very underrated and unknown cuisine. And so I want to say some names of like some local <laughs> South Dakota foods. Just like. And I want to I get your take on them, see if you like them then, if you still like them now, uh, and if you like ever crave them despite having been all over the world and had all these different foods. This is so, going to include your tiger meat. The first one is Chislik, though. first one's Chislik. Yeah, you know, Chislik was a uh, big excuse to leave the University of South Dakota and drive to Freeman, where you are very familiar and connected to, and spend the Sunday afternoon drinking beer and eating Chislik off, I guess, paper, wasn't it? I mean, it, it, it spread it out on the paper yeah. and, and heavily salted, mm -hmm. as I remember. So uh, I, I already know what it is. So chislic is cubed mutton that can either be eaten loose or on a stick, and it's deep fat fried or grilled. Yeah, um, and it, it's like uh, it has a little bit of marbling on there, and then there's a chislic circle where I grew up, which was Freeman, Menno, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and what would be the other one? Maybe Parkston, I think, and that's like where chislic was born out of, and where you go, deep fried mutton. Deep fried mutton. Depends what you get. Sometimes people serve it with toast. Sometimes it's with salt. Heavily salted, by the yep, way. Yep. Garlic salt is common on them. Salt, uh, pepper. But like, have you ever encountered anything like chislic in other places? No, never have. And when I took McGuane, uh to South Dakota to go pheasant hunting. We, I had him fly into Mitchell, picked him up there, and we went to Freeman. Uh, and I said, we're going to have lunch at Freeman. We're going to have chislic. He said, well, chislic? <laughs> What's chislic? I said, you're going you're gonna to find out you're going to love it. So we did. Yanni, I gave you some chislic for yeah, taking me out on. It was great. Is it like crispy on the outside? Or no? No? It doesn't have that. Yeah, uh, it might get a touch a little crispy bit. when it's yeah. fried. Yeah. All right. So the next one would be tiger meat. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I was not involved in that, frankly. That was. You know what tiger meat is, though? Yeah. Yeah, I do. But I, you know, it was not part of, it was not part of my household. My, okay. know, my, it was just raw deer meat, right? Well, it'd be like raw beef, and oh, then yeah. it's got a lot of uh, salt, uh, onion, green pepper in it, some yeah. other spices. God's making me hungry. <laughs> uh, so the next one, how about Fleischkiekla? No, I don't know that one either. Don't we were pretty that. much meat and potatoes people in our family. <laughs> well, this this was like ground meat inside yeah. of um, like uh, a pastry that you then deep fat fried. It's called a yeah. dogging. A what? Tell me, honey. <laughs> it's not. His, was, his, <laughs> his is deep fried. Was that a German dish? German dish. Yeah. I'm German, so I, a lot of these yeah, are probably no, be German. That, that part, I, I remember that. Mm -hmm. How about nephla soup or dumpling soup? Yeah, we did have that. Uh, but in, in our family, my mother worked, my father worked. So it was at the end of the day, it was meat and potatoes. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't any, there was no exotica, as it were. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, I'll tell you a pheasant story that when I was in college, my roommate was one of the two or three best wing shots in the state. And we would arrange our classes uh, in the morning from uh, 
8 until noon, Meredith would pick me up with Tom. And in those days, we'd road hunt. You know, we'd drive out of Vermilion, South Dakota, north along gravel roads along the cornfields and shoot pheasants. You know, we'd see them in the ditch and flush them and shoot them. And by the time uh, Thanksgiving came around, we must have had 50 birds in the locker downtown clean. So we bought two kegs of beer. And uh, and the way we (laughs) prepared pheasants in those days, you threw everything away except the breast. You know, nobody ate the legs or anything like that. And you cooked them in big casseroles with, uh, was it? Tomatoes? What? What was Cream of mushroom. Cream of mushroom. Oh yeah. Over the top. That's how we. We knew. It. We knew that recipe. Yeah. We, that's how we cooked <laughs> it. And then we invited all of our faculty uh, members, and never worried about our grades for the rest of the year. So. <laughs> what, what My about? mom used to take. She would take. Like just quartered out squirrels. So you take the four legs. Yeah. In the back. And then, just dump them in a crock pot. Yeah. And then pour cream of mushroom soup right. in there and then cook it so long that the it bones would go soft. Be like a bone bed on yeah. the bottom. They just settle down to the yeah. bottom. You'd have like an inch of miniature squirrel bones. And then floating up above that would be this squirrel meat laden squirrel soup. Squirrel and then you'd stew. make toast and put it on toast. We just call it shit, shit on a shingle. Yeah, which people also, that's another popular deer recipe, yep. shit on a shingle. I should make that for my kids. They'd probably like that. Um, and then another one, and this is probably a myth, but people had told me that the red beer was popularized or created in Vermilion where we went to college. Did you drink a lot of red beers down I there? I drank a lot of red beer. I, You know, it could have been uh, at the varsity, uh-huh. which was the hangout. Yep. You know, give me a red. You know, I... I think that uh, I think that's probably too. It's a beer with uh, tomato juice. Do you ever order at other places and have the bartender look at you funny? I wasn't crazy about it. You know, I kind of like good clean beer, and uh, I'm trying to remember what would be the occasions that would call for me to drink a red. That would be when I was hungover. There you go. <laughs> Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com.
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. What was your, your dad didn't hunt, you mentioned. Um, you remember him shooting a deer once. What, how, that was it. I mean, he never shot a gun uh, again. How did you, at what ages did you start to become aware of and participating in hunting and fishing? I think 12. Uh, there was a neighbor who had a little 410, and pheasant season was a religious holiday in South Dakota in those days. And I went out with him, and he said, look, you can use the 410. And then I had other friends. So a lot of the Southern guys were good hunters, for example. We didn't, you know, we shot everything. We shot squirrels. I didn't have anything to do with eating the squirrels. They all had squirrel stew at home, for example, that kind of thing. But pheasant season, and in those days, the limit was four. And you could walk into any farm and say, hey, can we hunt? Sure, not to worry about it. Now I go back every year, and it's just one big, you know, uh, organized, very expensive, and very well run, by the way, uh, 
place after another. Uh, so it was a different time. Did you guys fish in the river? Yeah, I fished a lot in the river. And we caught uh, something called drum, which is a river. Yep. You know what that is, a river bass of some kind. And we caught a small sturgeon. Uh, and then we caught catfish. And we also caught flathead catfish from time to time. Uh, so, yeah, it was it – was my friend who's not doing well, who came from North Carolina, we'd be down there at night fishing with our parkas on up against the, you know, the heavy rock part of the riprap of the river, throwing out these big slugs, you know, with huge uh, night crawlers on them and catch eight or nine of these pretty good, not, not bad eating fish. I used to work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Yankton at Gavin's Point Fish Hatchery. Yeah. We well, would, I don't know. I don't know you did like a hatchery gig. Oh, yeah. For four years. Huh. I, uh, my dad built, by the way, built all those oh, yeah? parks around there. <laughs> uh, that was his job. I, I appreciate his work. Um, what were you guys hatching? We did everything. Primarily, we were the pallid sturgeon recovery people. Okay. But we also yeah. did paddlefish. Um, and every spring, we would go catch our broodstock paddlefish at the White River yeah. um, up by Chamberlain. And How would you catch those? With enormous uh, drift nets. Um, in the White River, which they'd be running up to spawn. And so in 2014, I think it was, uh, we netted a 149-pound paddlefish, which would actually break the world record that was just broken, but because we were biologists catching this thing, it, it doesn't count. Yeah. Right? And the biologists I was with that were certainly That's smarter That's like a legit me. certified scale 149-pound yeah. Oh, yeah, we, paddlefish. we took it back to the hatchery, spawned her out, took millions of eggs from her, and then released her again. You ever eat any of those eggs in there? Um, one time we had, uh, a paddlefish die that somebody took the eggs from, went home and made some stuff and, uh, it was fine. Uh, I don't know. And below Yankton, uh, when the river was still, uh, Yankton was the last dam. So they had a pretty strong current from there on down. There was a guy named Henry Wolf, who was a commercial fisherman. Uh, he had a rig, you know, that was out there and they caught a couple of, uh, a couple of catfish that were uh, national records at the time, you know, down below Yankton. And I ran, uh, when I, by the time we moved to Yankton, I, I ran the waterfront. I, I rented boats and sold bait, and did that kind of thing, took chicks for a ride. <laughs> you, uh, you had a bait shop? Yeah. Right, like Johnny Morris from Bass Pro, huh? Yeah, right. Where I was going with that story, the paddlefish that we caught, that 149 pounder, seven feet long, the biologist I was with said that that was there before the dams were put in. Like, that was an OG paddlefish before yeah, it's interesting. Before his dad finished the dam. Yeah. It's crazy to think about. Well, and the... Uh, He's, he, he probably swam around telling everybody about what it used to be like. That's right. I could that's swim right. from here clear on. <laughs> Much different. Yeah. Well, at, at Fort Randall, you know, there was... Uh, there were all those shale cliffs along the river, mm -hmm. and we'd peel them off, and we found, you know, unfortunately, I didn't keep, we found a lot of fish embedded in that, you know, that were thousands of years old. Uh, oh, no kidding. Fish yeah. skeletons? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Do you remember the channel catfish record in South Dakota that was caught down by Vermilion? Yeah, it was turned out between Elk Point and Yankton. Yep. Yeah. But then it but turned this out is, to this be This is like a scandal, a, though. Then it turned out to be a blue catfish. From yeah, the, the photos. Right. 
You, you remember that story? I remember what had happened. I don't remember. I knew those guys. You did? Henry Wolf, the guy that I was talking about from Yankton, they were uh-huh. his buddies, and they would come up in the morning and have coffee. And I would sit in his little uh, powered boat, you know, with him. It was like a little tug. Uh-huh. And sit and have coffee with him in the morning. And he, we became very close friends. And he said, you got to go to medical school and become a doctor. That's the best profession there is. And I said, you know, I think I'll be a journalist. What? A journalist? No, you can't be a journalist. <laughs> that area had some great cat fishermen from that era. Yeah. The pictures they, you see yeah, in stuff. They really wild. did. Well, now you got to walk through it. Like, you got to walk through the story. So there were, how the how this fish for how many ever decades mm-hmm. had been misdiagnosed? Yep, I misidentified. Can't, I can't even remember that. The area has the three species of catfish: blues, channels, and flatheads. And as a channel catfish and a blue catfish mature, they tend to look very similar. And it gets to a point where the only way to identify them with some catfish is to count the anal rays on their fin. And a blue, I, I might have this wrong, and I can't Google it right now. Look like up, but which I, one has which number? I think a blue has 26 to 28, while a channel will have 22 to 24. You got to remember that uh, before all those dams went in, the Missouri River was primordial. You know, yeah. it, it drained out of the mountain west, came all the way across North Dakota. I mean, Montana first, then North Dakota. Uh, <clears throat> and there was stuff that, People had no idea that they were there, you know, the species that they were there. They'd been living there prehistoric times. Yeah, you had uh, uninterrupted travel Yeah, from, you know, yeah, the gulf in the lower end all the way to some mountain stream. So the great cat, cat fishermen from that area, uh, one of them caught a 55-pound, what he thought was a channel catfish and what a biologist agreed was a channel catfish. And luckily, there's photo evidence that exists showing you can count the anal rays. You can see that it's you know rounded or flat where it shouldn't be. Uh, and the record was pulled here about two years ago. And I wrote about this um, when I first started writing for the Farm Forum in South Dakota. I said, this record is a farce. They need to look into it. Um, other people had talked about it too. And then a few years later, they indeed did pull it because it was not a channel catfish. And for a channel catfish, it was at one time the world record. I think South Carolina ended up having a bigger one. But for a channel catfish, this is enormous, like the biggest channel in the world. But for a blue, it's probably half the size of like what the blue catfish record is. So this was indeed just a small blue catfish they misidentified as a channel. And then they reset the state record at zero. They set it to zero. And, and where for, does it sit now? Oh, I can't even remember. Because people were breaking it every day. Oh, yeah, every day. It, they, they started like a catfish <laughs> festival, and they really embraced it. And there was two pounds, then it was four pounds, then it was 10, then it was 11. Uh, Do you know it where was, it's at now? I can't remember where it's at right now. No, it, there was an enormous jump. There was like, it was like seven to eight and then like eight to 11 and 11 to 13. And then someone got like uh, 32 or something. Yeah, and then that's it kind of slowed it down now. Tom, I was reading, um, I don't want to tell you my source because if as a lifelong journalist, uh, you probably aren't, you're probably aware of the fallibility of Wikipedia. Yeah. However, <laughs> I was reading <laughs> That's where, I, that's where I go for all my news. What I, what I was reading in Wikipedia was that after Martin Luther King's assassination and then the Kennedy assassination, uh, you got fed up with guns and didn't want a firearm. 
I was living in California, gave my guns away. Uh, yeah, what was the, well, explain that thought well, process? I had, uh, I had, uh, you know, I had, uh, I didn't give away my uh, the antique guns that my father had been given because I wasn't shooting them anyway. But I had, had a thirty thirty and a you know a little twenty two Remington and a, uh, I think probably that was when I had a Wingmaster twelve gauge pump shotgun. And I said to the camera crews, who wants a gun? I'm not going to have them in the house. We have three girls. You know, uh, I was just so devastated by all the shooting that was going on. I gave them away. <clears throat> and I didn't get involved again until I moved to New York. And I had some friends who were making more money than they knew how to spend. So a lot of them were going out and buying expensive guns and joining hunting clubs and so on. And one of them said to me one day, hey, you grew up in that part of the world. You must have been a shooter. You know, we, we've created these great pheasant lodges, and so you want to go. And I said, yeah, yeah, okay, I go. And so they got a gun for me, and I, you know, quickly came back, and at the end of the day, they said, God, you know, you got to do this. And by then, I could afford a really nice gun. <laughs> and I got involved again, and I started coming out to South Dakota every year to hunt pheasants with my pals. It's a religion in South Dakota, frankly, and it was a way for us to reconnect again. And that's what I do now. You know, I'm a bird hunter. And uh, I, until recently in Montana, I could shoot uh, a lot of game birds that are not here anymore. They, we don't know why some of them disappeared. And then you got, you eventually became a avid fly fisherman, correct? Yeah, that, uh, I remember the first time I went fly fishing, I I was down at Jackson Hole, and I had a cameraman who was very good fly fisherman. He said, you ought to try this. So we went to town and bought me some you know, kind of rudimentary equipment. And I went out, and I'm a reasonably good athlete, and I, I was catching on pretty quickly. But my favorite story about that is there's a bend in the snake where I was work, where I was fishing, and there was a, a boatload of tourists coming by. I thought, I'm going to show them. So I, you know, do a double haul, cast, and the two tips from my rod went flying across the river <laughs> in front of them. And I just pretended like that's the way it is. <laughs> that's that's the intention. My favorite part of pheasant hunting is just the camaraderie and like the buzz of that opening weekend. Yeah. Uh, but you keep doing it, not even in South Dakota sometimes. So what is it about pheasant hunting that you like so much? A lot of it is the camaraderie. A lot of it was the, uh, you know, kind of being with your pals. Um, a wonderful part of the outdoors. I love the fall on the Great Plains. Uh, and you know, friends of mine who grew up hunting quails, ah, anybody can hit one of those pheasants. I said, come with me. <laughs> you know, they're very fast. Uh, and, but it was, a, it was a religion when I was growing up, and it was a, a big social thing. And I, you know, the other part of my life is that I wanted to be involved with whatever was going on. You know, well, that looks interesting. Let mm -hmm. me try that. Uh, but then I moved to Omaha, and I created a little group there and continued to hunt. And then went to Atlanta to quit hunting, when moved to Los Angeles, quit hunting. And then uh, from L.A., Washington, and then New York. And then I got involved with the club business. I, didn't, I belonged to one. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, <laughs> the only reason I stay is the, the, the handlers and everything. I had a fantastic dog, one of the best dogs in the world. Got it by accident, frankly. It was trained in. Everybody wanted to be around that dog, and that dog kept me hunting. So I'd go up to this 
very high-end club, and the uh, general manager, the guy who really put it together, would say, field one, it's all yours, don't worry about it. You know, and so I'd have the best place to hunt, and just me and my dog, and I love that. Did you, in that era, working in media, did you need to, did you ever feel social repercussions um, from being a hunter? Like now, I feel that there are a lot of people who are very. I, I don't want to. I don't want to out them, but I'm always hearing from various celebrities who like to hunt a little bit, but don't want anyone to know they hunt. Well, I didn't think about that, frankly. I I was always willing to defend. I said, look, I eat what I shoot, you know, and we do limits, you know, and the conservation goes hand in hand with good hunting properties. So I don't have any worry about that. And it's it's always <clears throat> it's for me especially, it's been a great social connection to my friends in South Dakota, you know, that we, we all grew up the same way. And, you know, I got to a certain place in life and I could go back to South Dakota and be one of the guys. And then, but I had this fantastic dog called Sage and everybody wanted to be around Sage. So I would go out there every year and hunt with Sage. No apologies. Well, you know, it was not, it's different when you're a sport hunter and you're using a shotgun or if, even if you're, shooting game like deer or whatever, then the crazies. I mean, there's a great place in uh, in Big Timber where the guy kind of wide-eyed said to me, they want machine guns now so they can shoot coyotes from the sky. And I said, that's crazy. That's nuts. And he said, I know, but it's not illegal in many instances. That's what makes me crazy. And people, the, the whole carry business, you know, I, we were at a, at a my son-in-law's mother died, and we went back to a small town in Oklahoma where he'd been raised in a big, wonderful place where everybody gathers on Sunday night. Four or five guys walked out with 45s on their hip, you know, with their family. Uh, what's that all about? You, you, don't, you didn't like it? Well, I, I didn't stand up and, and object to it, but I don't— No, it's hard, uh, to, it's hard to object on that. You know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it wasn't necessary. Uh, look, people have a right to arm themselves. You know, I've got guns on the property where you sit right now, but they're secure. You know, I don't, I don't have them under my bed or anything. But I don't. The whole idea that I'm defined by what I've got on my hip, I find offensive. Yeah, I got you. Did you introduce any celebrities to pheasant hunting or guns? No, it was. Uh, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, one of those guys. Uh, one of the guy now is the CEO of iHeartRadio, big, big broadcaster type. I think he was the one who said to me, you must have hunted, you know. And what happened in Wall Street, they suddenly, uh, a lot of guys made a lot of money right away and went out and bought guns. And then these clubs kind of developed around the rim of the city. And a lot of it had to do with old Eastern culture. You know, they'd grown up, you know, shooting uh, and that kind of thing. So that's when I got involved. But I have, I've kind of stayed in the middle. I don't go to Europe and hunt. You know, uh, in uh, you know, in Scotland or anything like that. Although if I were asked, <laughs> I might. But well, I was going to ask if any if your travels for work ever took you to a place where you ha had come upon the opportunity to fish or to hunt in, in a. You know, <clears throat> I'm so busy when I'm traveling. I'm right. always aware. Uh, you know, I was. Uh, you know, when I'm in the Middle East, a number of my ichthyology friends say, you know, there's a species of, of trout 
you know, it's in some of those rivers. You know, I said, you know, look, I'm not looking for fish. I'm looking for sanctuary when I'm over there. You know, I don't, I'm not going to go down and wade into the river. There was a famous story about Saddam Hussein. We, this is after the, after he came down, I went to a, the third division. Uh, I had been following a kid. He was a mortar man, and we'd been following him from basic training through and followed him over, over there. Great guy. Had a really tough war. Anyhow, he was at the base of this dam, and they were protecting the dam. It was hydroelectric. And uh, one guy they befriended who was a local, and he told them that Saddam had a big palace. I went to see the palace. It was a huge palace. By then, the army had taken it over, and they were using it as a headquarters. And they said some locals before the war came up here, and they were fishing at the base of the dam because it was so rich. And then one day, out of the uh, palace, helicopter rises, comes up, blows the hell out of the guys, and nobody went back to fish again. You know, that's how Saddam hmm. operated. Seriously? Seriously. Huh. Seriously. You uh, you had a hard time getting started in college, you know? Like, you kind of bombed out at a couple schools. Yeah, I did. I, and then, uh, your, and then your, your wife-to-be shamed you? Yeah, pulled the chain hard. <laughs> I uh, I still don't know what happened to me. I you know I came out of high school. This is immodest, but I was a real whiz kid. You know, I was boy state governor, and I was a jock, and you know, and I was president of my class, and I was getting all these honors. I was being recruited by schools. Uh, I went to the University of Iowa, and uh, University of Iowa is a very good school. A lot of fantastic coeds from the North Shore of Chicago who proved to be a big distraction to me. Uh, and I was interested in not going to class, but going to other things. I remember going, they have something called the Old Capitol. It was a lecture place. And I'd go over there and hear these exotic lectures by guys talking about theology in the nuclear age, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. But going to the classes that I should have been going to, I wasn't doing as much. And uh, I, I guess I just thought I could get along. Uh, what it, carried me through before. I'd always been a good student, but I just wasn't paying attention. And I, most of my friends were a little bit older. Uh, some of them were football players. And so I didn't flunk out, but I came close. So at the end of the year, I was so kind of uh, at odds with myself. I thought I better go back, get my act together. And I went to South, I enrolled at the University of South Dakota, continued on that same plane. And at the end of that year, fabulous professor there, head of the political science department. And there was a small group of us who were political science majors called me over to his house for dinner. And he said, get out of here, get it out of your system, come back when you can do yourself some good, your family some good, get out of here, just whatever it takes. I don't want to see you next year. I thought that was a ticket to go do whatever the hell I wanted to do. And because I had a certain skill set as a, you know, radio disc jockey and other things, I got jobs. And then I got a job in Sioux City, Iowa, which is 60 miles away from the University of South Dakota as a, uh, a booth announcer, weekend weatherman, and kind of all-purpose guy for 75 bucks a week. And they had a wonderful uh, news director who'd come from Northwestern, and he was destined to do well, and he ended up being a CBS correspondent, and he became a good friend, and he became a mentor, and he said, Tom, this is not the way for you. You've got to get your act together. So I went back to the university and uh, 
I called Meredith, my friend from high school, uh, who was kind of all everything. You know, she was a big scholastic leader at the university. She'd been Miss South Dakota and all these other things. She was so highly regarded with good reason. And I said, yeah, I'm going to be in town. Let's get together. She wrote me the most dis dismissive note you can possibly imagine. I'm not interested. I don't want to see you again. Your mother doesn't know what to do with you. She's terribly disappointed. Uh, you know, I don't know what's going on. So I took that letter to a very close friend of ours who later, and I, you know, because I stayed in touch with the intellectual circles. And Bob became one of the leading Soviet authorities in America, still at it, Bob Legwold. And uh, I said, can you believe that Meredith would, and he said, yeah, I can believe it. We don't know what's going on with you. It was a wake-up call. So I went back. I got in the carpool, and I started driving. You know, I'd get off work at midnight. I'd get up at 5, go to the university, be in class until noon, then go back and work. And about, I don't know, five months into that, I was in the library one day, and Meredith came over and said, oh, you know, I went too far. I said, no, you didn't. I had it coming. Went from there, and 58 years later. What's the, what's the key to 58 years of marriage? Oh, the uh, easy key in my case is that she can do everything. I mean, what you see around here is her. She's an expert bridge player. She's a great, came out of here when I wanted to buy the ranch. She thought it was the worst idea I ever had. Within two years, she was one of the leading sliders riders in, in Montana. She, you know, she could just do whatever and, and not break a sweat. And, uh, and the, in terms of the public profile, which comes with my life, not interested. You know, she has, uh, everybody is a, she doesn't have any enemies. She, everybody's an admirer, but it rolls off from her. Um, there's a great story about uh, that I wrote about when we were young and in California. Uh, we suddenly got pulled into the old Hollywood crowd because uh, there'd be big benefits and that kind of thing. And I would be there as an NBC guy. And then they saw Meredith, and Meredith was just so drop-dead beautiful and easy and charming and everything that we suddenly got kind of pulled into that. And my favorite story is that uh, Rosalind Russell came up to me at a party and said, you know who I am, Mr. Brokon? I said, of course I do. And she said, I hear that beautiful young woman over there is your wife. And I said, yeah, she is. She said, we're having a wedding anniversary. Freddie and I, her husband, Freddie Brisson, we don't have any young people. Would you come? Can you imagine? I mean, uh, you know, I'm doing the 11 o'clock news. I'm, we're four years out of South Dakota at that point, five years out of South Dakota. I said, yeah. She said, do you have a tuxedo? And I said, no. She said, rent one. I, okay. And so, and she said, I'll send you a telegram. That's how they did things. So we go yeah. to this party. We're the only ones we don't know, in a way. It was, you know, it was Jack Lemmon and, and, and Kirk Douglas and Ronald Reagan, who had just been elected governor of, of, of California, who I knew a little bit because I was covering him. But it was like that. It was filled with these, you know, AAA stars. So Ros Russell says, okay, we're going to have dancing now, real old-fashioned stuff. And she went by and winked at me, and I couldn't figure out why. And she had uh, hats, caps for the guys, and scarves for the women. You had to match the cap and the scarf. That was your dancing partner. And I look up, and Meredith's being led onto the dance floor by Ronald Reagan. And he, you know, he was a huge star at the time. He'd just been elected. And Meredith's a very good dancer. And Dutch, as we like to call him, was an outstanding dancer within three beats 
Everybody stands back and watches my wife. At that point, 28 years old, most money she ever spent on a dress was $94 for that party. And they just tear up the floor, and they're having the best time out there. So now the dance ends. Mary starts back, and, and Reagan says, oh, no, we're going to do this again. Two beats into the dance. Nancy Reagan says, Ronnie, there's a question I can't answer. <laughs> and pulls them away back to their table. So that's one of our favorite stories. <laughs> then we became very, very close to Nancy before the end of, the, of everything. So, you know, we've just had this right place, right time, magical life. And huge part of it for me is that Meredith is there, you know, a kind of even keel, you know, winning for everybody. So we, we've been, for two kids from Yankton High School, worked out pretty well when you were doing those early jobs you mentioned like disc jockeying and doing weekend news uh what was it that you were doing well enough to keep advancing along like when you look back now you know like what were the characteristics or traits was it just work is there sort of a talent and is there a native talent well i don't know i think i think people determined that I was interested in what I was doing, that I was serious about journalism. And, you know, and I had a certain cosmetics thing where I could get on television, and, uh, you know, and I was, from the time I could remember or anybody could remember about me, I was at ease talking and doing things. So I was not a bad performer, but I was really interested in the substance of it all. So I went from Sioux City to Omaha for two uh, two years in Omaha doing all kinds of things here morning, noon, and night. And bang, I get picked up by the biggest station in the South, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the height of the civil rights movement. Next thing I know, I'm covering Dr. King and everybody down there and feeding this stuff to NBC. Eight months after I'm in Atlanta, NBC comes and says, we want you to come to California go to work for us. So it was bang, bang, bang. I get to California in 1966, and the first thing I do is start covering Ronald Reagan, who everybody said, hey, he can't win. And I got to know the whole team, and I was on the air on election night and doing all of this stuff. And, uh, and then California, in those days especially, and I think it's still true, they don't ask about your pedigree. Can you do the job or not? We had a great life out there. The closest friends that we have to this day are people our age who came there at the same time. Warren Buffett's irreplaceable lawyer, one of the greatest lawyers in America, came from a small town in Iowa at the same time we were there. There were other couples like that. California was on the rise. Everything was affordable. We bought a wonderful house up in the valley, up in the hills, $42,500. Yeah. You know, and we three couples would go out for dinner. It would be a hundred. It would not be a hundred bucks for three couples. You know, at the end of some of the best restaurants in town. And then I was doing a lot of work for NBC. And then, you know, we had a really good life there. And Meredith had a good life. She was a linguist. And, and then NBC came and said, time to move. we we got to come back east. Chancellor had been trying to get me to do it. I said, well, yeah, why do I want to do that? So, you gotta, so I went big. I became the White House correspondent. And the timing, again, was in Brokaw's favor. I caught Watergate. Boom. Yeah, is it? Uh, I, I also read that it's rumored, I don't know if you've ever acknowledged it, or maybe it came from you, that you were offered but turned down 
an opportunity to be Nixon's press secretary? It was true. Bob Holden. Your career would have went in a way different direction. No, I, there was no way I was going to do so that. So you didn't even entertain the idea no, of being not, not even entertain it. I almost threw up when they made the offer. Yeah, there's no one more reviled than a press secretary during a crisis. No, and that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a journalist. I didn't want to be on the other side. I wanted to do what I was doing. And I ended up having a good uh, Bob Haldeman, who was, made the offer and was persistent, finally you know, he went to jail, and Watergate's over, and we're, I'm uh, in New York doing a kind of retrospective on Watergate, and I get this big bear hug from behind me, and I turn around, and it's Bob Holden, and he said, hey, Tom, you know how many times I've watched you, and thought, God, I could have sent him to jail. <laughs> uh, so, you remained friendly with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Like, you, you, you speak well of him now. Mostly Nancy, but yeah. uh, also Reagan. And I was. I didn't think he was up to the job when he got the job. I was. I, I was worried about. It. I thought he was successful in California, because he had a strong state legislation. He learned how to work with him, and then I learned as president, because I became very, very close to Jim Baker, his chief of staff, who said he knew what he knew, and that's where he spent his time. And what he didn't know, he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to fake it. So he said we'd have these staff meetings at 7 o'clock in the morning. Baker would run them, and then the president would show up at 8. And Baker would say, Mr. President, this is what we think you ought to do today. And this is the area that we ought to concentrate on. And he'd say, okay, Jim, but I don't like that part. And he said when he didn't like something, he really had strong reason for not liking it. He always knew who he was. So I came to admire him. You know, we were different in a lot of philosophical things. I think he was still... You know, in the 30s, when it came to race, for example, he didn't quite understand how that was going. But I thought he was very important in standing up to the Russians and, and, and making a stand about the Berlin Wall. And he made the country optimistic, you know, that they came to believe that they could do what they needed to do and want to do it. He had that kind of cheerfulness about him. And he didn't, things rolled off his back. You know, he talked, Sam Donaldson, and I've talked about this a lot. Sam came, we have the same feelings. We were the two that were invited to Nancy's, uh, to Nancy's funeral. In fact, I spoke, and Sam was there as well, the only two correspondents, because we dealt with him in a way that we tried to see what he was up to, and we had an appreciation of what he got right, and also what he got wrong, we pulled the chain. And he could handle it. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. 
That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Now we look at news and it's um and and the people who bring us news and I think the idea of uh of impartiality, bipartisanship, we're almost to the point where people don't even give it lip service anymore. No, that's right. Uh, but you were of the era when you at least had to pretend. How uh. How much did you, because looking at your, the, the people you've known and the way you speak about, the way you just spoke about Reagan, for instance, the fact that you may have, you know, that someone at the Nick, within the Nixon administration looked at you, um, that you received a great award under Obama. Like, I'd look at the, the resume and be like, oh, that must be like a fairly bipartisan, open-minded person. But did you find that because of your career, you had to foster that and bury 
your impulses and instincts in order to maintain this aura of impartiality? Or did you naturally feel that way? No, I, I, I think it's the role of a journalist. You know, I had, as I've often said to people, I have very strong ideological, philosophical feelings, great interest in a lot of things that don't always match the people that I'm covering. But that's not, my job is not to impose on my audience what I believe. My job is to find out what the president or a decision maker is about and how they arrived at that conclusion, whether it holds water or it doesn't hold water, and to be fair about it. And I, the thing that I've had the, the greatest pride in, I suppose, as a journalist, is that over the years, people have come up to me and say, you know, Brokaw, I don't agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I always believe that you have integrity, you know, that you've arrived at this honestly, and that's what counts. And I'm also, you know, I, I don't go in uh, looking for a fight. I go in trying to find out what does the public need to know here? What, what's important to them? And part of that was I kept my parents in mind. I kept Main Street in mind because of how I'd grown up. What do they need to know? Yeah, You know, wherever I was in the world, I think, is this going to play in Yankton? You know, uh, I remember looking at rivers in the Middle East and thinking, God, it looks a little bit like the Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I carried that with me wherever I went. During the height of nightly news, there was the big three, like you, Dan Rather, and was Jennings, Peter, Peter Jennings. Jennings. What was your relationship like with those guys? Was it competitive or friendly or no relationship at all? No, there was a relationship, and we actually, <clears throat> we were very competitive, very competitive, and we got angry with each other from time to time. But at the end of the day, when I left nightly early, because I wanted to have a life beyond just being on the air at 6.30 every night, it stunned a lot of people. Peter and Dan spoke at a testimonial to me, and Peter kind of nailed it. He came out and he said, People often ask, uh, I have to make sure I get this right. People often ask, do you like each other? And he would say, not every day, but we all have respect for each other because we're committed journalists. At the end of the day, all three of us admire what the other one is doing. And we've competed all over the world. And our social relationship was that Peter and I gave Dan a dinner at our house, for example, when he got in that jam, you know, about whether he reported on Bush. Oh, yeah, right yeah. We had a dinner for him because his life was, you know, disappearing before his eyes. And we, and we put together some of his friends. And Peter and I gave him a dinner and said, Dan, there is life after all of this, after all. And we all have to be aware of that. And I, I was heartbroken when Peter got sick and died as early as he did. Uh, I, I just made the decision to leave about... A year before that, and he came to me, he called everybody lad. Lad, what are you thinking? And I said, Peter, I want another life. I mean, I, it's hard for me to improve of what I've been able to do. You know, the last big story I covered was 9-11. And, uh, and I, I, I want to go to South Dakota when the pheasant hunting is going on. I want to be able to spend more time in Montana. I want to travel to places not to be there on assignment, but just because I want to be there. So I want a life. Uh, and, you know, you have to be careful about, in these jobs, that the public adulation, the attention that you get, doesn't become toxic. And I was determined not to have it become toxic. I wanted to go out on my terms. Not what, on what does it look like when it's toxic? Well, when it's toxic is that 
you, you get to believe all the attention that you're getting is because you're a wonderful person. <laughs> That's when it's toxic. You know, all the attention you're getting often is because they think you can do something for them or they want to kind of rub shoulders with you. Uh, that That's when it becomes toxic. Thank God I had Meredith at my side because it never got out of control. You know, she was always totally, you know, uh, in, totally in sync with how life should be led. I remember when I was doing the Today Show and things were got very difficult. NBC was a mess at one point. And I didn't know whether or not my career was going to go on. And I came home one night and I was quite anxious. Mary said, Tom, we have each other. We have these three fabulous girls. What are we worried about? Look at us. Well, we've come from Yankton, South Dakota to where we are. You'll always have a job. Don't worry about it. You need to hear that. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine recently sold his business and he described himself as being in the process of crawling into a deep, dark hole um, willfully, right? He just wanted to take just a check out. Did you imagine, like looking where you now live on the edge of a creek surrounded by big cottonwoods, um, very secluded, all along, did you think, when I'm done, I will go and live uh, on a dirt road and fish? <clears throat> no, I wanted it to be part of my life. I didn't want to give up on everything. I, I'm still kind of active now. I mean, I'm in touch with people at NBC every day. Oh, okay. And, yeah, email. I was just on with Andrea uh, on the air with her when uh, the president was going to uh, Mount Rushmore because yeah. I wanted to tell the Lakota story. And I said, tell, put me on. I've got something to say. And, and I got an enormous reaction because almost no one knew that the Black Hills were really ceded to the Lakota people in 1860. And Custer rode in and brought gold miners and they ran the tribes out and they sent them out to the reservations. And then in 1980, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that was illegal and they have just compensation coming. So they started a fund, and the Indians will not accept it. They want the land, they don't want the money, and they've got more than a billion dollars, frankly, in funds that have been put away for them. And I told that story on the air. I said, this is what you need to know about where we are now. A huge reaction. Almost no one knew about that. Mm -hmm. Growing up in Igloo, Pickstown, Yankton, you spent like your whole childhood in reservations or on the edge of reservations. You, so you were very exposed to those people in that culture. Like, did you feel an obligation in your career to cover that more, cover it differently, educate people on reservations? You no, know, I have a lot. I've done a lot. When the Today Show was doing every state uh, one year, uh, and they were doing kind of on the cheap, I said, I'm not going to do it. If you want me to do it, I won't do it on the cheap. I'm going to South Dakota. And I got my friend Gerald Onefeather to come uh, to be my representative of the Lakota tribe and talked about the history of them. Uh, I went back and wrote a big magazine piece about growing up among tribes in South Dakota for the Los Angeles Times uh, when we were doing the Olympics in uh, Australia. I went back and found Billy Mills, who was a great, you know, the great long-distance runner, who was a Lakota Sioux, who has a foundation now, I think, in Colorado. And he came up, and I did a story about him. But the, the story, by and large, is heartbreaking. 
frankly. I, I, we, Meredith and I actively support a little junior college uh, on, the, on the Pine Ridge Res. Uh, one of my friends, Jerry Onefeather, who was a classmate of mine at the University of South Dakota, a serious political science student. He was in the library when I was at the bar. I mean, that tells you the difference. <laughs> and uh, we put a scholarship in his name there. And they've, gotten, they've used it to get a lot of other contributions. We lost Jerry a few years ago, but if you'll permit me, I'll tell one quick story about him. I hadn't seen him in a number of years. And he was a really serious, typical kind of Sioux warrior type. And he's continued to he get a master's degree in political science. So our eldest daughter was a position, was thinking about doing a, a summer internship at the, at the reservation in, on Pine Ridge. So we were there driving around. It got dark. And I said, we could go find my friend Jerry Onefeather. And Mary said, I said, they all know where he lives. So he stopped us and he said, oh, you go two miles north, you go one mile east, you go another half mile. And that's Jerry Onefeather's house. So that's what we did. And it was dark when we got there, but his mother was outside, native dress. And she said, oh, I know who you are. I said, well, where's Jerry? She said, he has new babies in that house over there. So I went over, opened the door to the house, walked in, not knocking. Beautiful young Indian woman at the stove cooking dinner. And over on the sofa was my friend Jerry Onefeather with a baby. And I said, hey, Jerry, how's it going? He looked at me and he looked at his wife and he said, I told you I knew him. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Do you, uh, I'm trying to think of how to ask this question because I don't really understand, I don't fully understand it myself, but Ask me all, I, well, okay, I, all I hear about, all I hear about, and I even tell people about it, is how ripped apart we are as a nation right now. Partisan, you know, partisanship, right? If you read the news, watch the news, that's your understanding of what is going on right now in this country. But if you just go about uh, your daily existence. I'm not talking the last month. I just mean like in, in recent years. You go about your daily existence, I feel that every day you still encounter examples of human decency. Like decency being all around you. And so I, I find myself struggling to reconcile uh, what I understand to be going on with what I see going on. Well, what you see on television and other areas is a distillation of the uh, toxic environment, if you will, that we're living in and the incendiary quality of the time that we're living in because that's what news is. You know, here's, they don't try, oh, everything's great. Yeah, here's a nice guy yeah, that helped I, the guy I, I, out I, I, when his gotta, car broke you gotta, down. <laughs> you got to talk about what needs to be corrected and what's going wrong. Yeah, I got you. So, but I think what I do believe as a student of journalism, and especially this time, is that the screen is so crowded, frankly, now, with everybody who wants to claim a place of some kind that it does get out of proportion. And I think the biggest challenge for whoever the next president is, whether it's this one or whether it's Joe, uh, they're going to have to find a way to pull the country back together again. And that's going to mean they're going to have to reach across party lines. I thought, I actually, 
was called to the White House when President Obama was first elected by friends of mine who were on his staff, and they were off to an uncertain start. And here was an intellectual African-American guy from Harvard uh, who was a liberal Democrat uh, who had not served in Washington. And it was, things were not going very well at the beginning. And so I went down, I had lunch with my friend, and then he said, well, I have the president come in. It was a setup. I said, look, I don't advise presidents to him. I said, you know, that's not what I do. I'm a journalist. I cover. But uh, in this case, just make a couple of observations. Why you got, why you got me. <laughs> yeah. If, you know, I think if you, he said, look, these guys, uh, Haley Barber is a real Republican from Mississippi, you know, <laughs> really tough, smart guy, can be dead charming, but also, you know, his... His philosophy is what he's going to pursue. He's sitting here, he's saying nice to me, he walks outside and beats my brains in. I said, that's what he does. That's what, you know, that's what his job is. What if you surprised everybody and said you want to go to the state of Kansas and speak to a joint session of the legislature about the common problems that we all have and get yourself schooled on what Kansas is all about before you go out there? Why are they that way? And try to get a dialogue going. Reach across the party lines. Didn't work. No. <laughs> and then uh, there was another episode quite similar to that with him later on. And I always believed it was in part because he's a brilliant guy, no question about it. And he also uh, has a strong sense of who he is, uh, extraordinary background, you know, with his mother and his father and the whole thing. But everybody I've ever known who spent time with him at when he was an undergraduate in California, when he was at Harvard, and all say the same thing, which I agree with. He's got a great mind. Didn't have enough boots on the ground experience, in my judgment. You know, that, uh, for example, in the first two years, they lost the House. You know, he was barely getting started, but the Republicans took the House. So at the end of that election, instead of having people come to the White House for dinner, he had him come to a hotel, the Jefferson Hotel, and put on a dinner there. Wrong thing to do. You know, bring him into the system. Show him the White House. I used to watch Bill Clinton, who was a master at this, get these guys who were uncertain about him, and he'd invite him over, he'd want to go for a morning jog, and they'd go for a morning, and then they'd come back into the Oval Office, and they, ah, you know, they were blown away by it. So for all of his great strengths, and they were considerable, he was never really comfortable being a Paul. And it was not just my conclusion. I knew staff around him. On the other, but I'm, I'm not taking anything away from him. He was elected twice. He's a brilliant guy. He'll be well-remembered uh, for his integrity, his personality, his wife, his children. I mean, he's a, an extraordinary example of what we want for American leadership. But then it also requires... You know, an ability to say, maybe I have to change a little bit to get them to see it my way. Yeah. Uh, you don't think that you think it was more of a personality trait rather than being like he's criticized as being an, an elitist? Uh, no, I think it's personality. I mean, everybody who knew him at Harvard, everybody who knew him when he was in the state legislature in Illinois said the same thing. And I understood why. You know, he found a way to present himself that was acceptable to the people that he needed to get him elected. Yeah. And it's just not his nature, you know, to pick a fight, to go off and particularly just find a, a way to pick a fight. He can be 
drop dead charming. I mean, I was at a big event in New York recently, and uh, it was a Kennedy thing. He spotted me, and he turned around and said, hey, Tom. He sat down. He said, how's it going? What's going on? And so on. But it was not a Paul's Paul kind of thing. It was just he was genuinely interested in what we were doing. Do you uh, do you picture that we'll, as a country, um, pull out of this? God, I hope so. Uh, I, it's not going to be easy. This is, there are huge changes going on. They're going on politically, culturally, socially, economically. Uh, and it's going to take, and I know that there are <clears throat> very smart people who are thinking about this. You know, how are we going to stitch us back together again? How are you going to create uh, a new environment? Uh, and then what are the parts of that environment? Uh, uh, it, the blueprint is not clear to me at this point. I mean, we have to get through the election. I remember talking to Bill Gates uh, about, I don't know, a month, I talked to him a couple of times when the uh, epidemic started. And I said, Bill, I've been on the air. He said, no, I understand. It was very nice what you're doing. Bill and Melinda are geniuses at what they've been doing in terms of attacking that. I said, make them. You mean with like the work the Gates Foundation does? Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I said, make them the head of a new, larger, reaching out kind of apparatus. And he said, Tom, you got to wait till the election is over. And he's right. You know, that when the election is still going on, the stakes are so big about who gets to sit in the White House that you got to get through that first before you can go to the next step. Yeah. When when you asked Spencer if he was uh, a Mennonite, a Mennonite, was it because his stunning beard or because where he's from? <laughs> no, it's just that area. You know. Oh, that neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. My my hometown's called Menno. So is that right? Yeah. yeah. You ever think about shaving your mustache off and going with more of an Amish look? Uh, it naturally happened when my beard first started coming in. So accidentally, that was a, a period of time. But no. Yeah, that's an unusual group because you're the only one with a beard. Uh, beards have taken over America, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> they have. My Wall Street buddies are all bearded now. Uh, you know, they're not clean shaven. Uh, it's, it's happening with, uh, in a way that I'm always interested in how these trends start. You know, and, and how it becomes. I have a theory about it. I think it had to do with the war on terror. And that when the special forces soldiers started growing up, going in and they were trying to assimilate a little bit yeah. in appearance to Northern Alliance soldiers and things, that they started growing beards. And I think that that took off the, that, it was a certain like toughness to having one. Yeah, that, that, and, you know, I think that could have been it. All I'm trying to think of uh, a kind of iconic public figures in our lifetime uh, who are not growing beards now because they can't because of. Well, that'd be me. Well, <laughs> I, I, I could grow a chin one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have any, beard, but I mean, like uh, Harrison Ford doesn't have a beard, for example, or a lot of the big stars. Don't have beards. Uh, nobody in our business on television has gone there. I don't think that that's I a good can. point. Yeah. Uh, one last one for you. Uh, in term, like I, I've all—I don't know how I've always known this, but I've always known that you were a hunter and an angler. Um, it was like if someone asked me, like, name a fact about yeah, I'd be like, ah, Tom Brokaw. I know he likes to hunt and fish. 
uh, when you list your, you know, how you self-identify, right? People say like, what are you? Like, what makes you tick? Um, how toward the top or toward the bottom when you're rattling off, like, where do you throw that in? Oh, and I like to hunt and fish. Like, is that right away? Is it way down below golfing? Like, where does it sit? Uh, I, I don't know. I, you know I, for, for one thing, I seldom self-identify. I mean, I, I know are you, who are I, you leery of people no, who do? I'm, no, I'm, I know who I am. I know what my <laughs> interests are. Uh, you know, in the last third of my life, I've become a writer uh, of some note. And that's very important to me. But I don't say, I'm Tom Brokaw, I'm a writer. Uh, what I generally true. say is that I'm Tom Brokaw, I'm a journalist. And journalism gives you a big tent in which you can insert a lot of different things. And then when it comes to my interests, uh, I'm like that kid who wanted to see the floor in the post office. I want to see what's going on. I want to turn over rocks and do things, go around the world. When, when Meredith and I were finally got together, it stunned everybody. Uh, she came. She was a doctor's daughter and really straight arrow, and there I was, been through this kind of wild period. And she always had the best answer. Her sister came to her and said, why Tom? She said, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. I want to hit you with one That's last a good answer. Uh, one last one is I asked you about this key to 58 years of marriage. And it seemed like the answer basically is like, try to marry someone really good. Uh, what is, do you have like a, 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 do you have a bit of life advice that you dispel about couples and how no, get- no, no, just in general, like a thing you found, a thing you found to be true that would be of value to, um, that would be of value to people that are now in their twenties and thirties. Uh, get up every morning, determined to learn something that's new. Uh, take a chance, you know. Don't be afraid to uh, lean out over the precipice a little far. Don't fall, but uh, take a chance. I think that's a big, big part of it. But also, uh, what you need to do is to understand that proportion is an important part of life. You know, don't get carried away uh, with uh, getting in debt, you know, uh, drinking too much, uh, reaching too far, one of the reasons that our marriage works so well is that we have that kind of balance, the two of us. You know, I'm a guy who gets on the airplane and flies off to a war zone bank like that, and Meredith's back there saying, you know, we're going to keep everything in balance. On the other hand, she went off to Africa to do a project on AIDS and ended up creating a fantastic business in uh, southwestern southeastern Africa for in a small villages of, of tomato plants. So break the rules, do things, but always know that there's a downside. You got to be careful. You know, it's not going to happen without you using good judgment. What uh, value do you most highly rate for yourself or that's most important? Well, you know, I think I, I, I think honesty is the greatest value. I just think you have to be honest about who you are, how you deal with people, and how they can rely on you or not. Rely. And we all stumble from time to time. You know, 
I've stumbled. Everybody I know has stumbled at one point or another. But you have to look at the big picture of where does that all fit in then. Uh, you know, the, the stumbles ought not to define your entire life, for example. On the other hand, some small achievement ought not to be out of proportion either. You know, that's, that's kind of what's expected. I am what I am, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of young correspondents come to me now, and I, we have a great, great group of young I'm really proud of them. You know who Richard Engel is? A, uh, no, I don't. Fearless correspondent that works for us. And I helped recruit him to where we are. We stay in touch. And we stay in touch because I can kind of help him with, you know, proportion in your life. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the young people who are at NBC now, I've, you know, I've come up through all the ranks and I'm so proud of them and I try to help them. But I don't try to say do it my way. I just say use your head. You know? Well, Tom, your story is like an inspiration for uh, like a kid that grew up in rural South Dakota that wanted to work in media. So, like, I'm thrilled to be sitting here with the guy from the Nightly News that was from South Dakota. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you and see your ranch. Well, one of, one of the things that I say, I'm always at comfort, more comfortable when I'm here with somebody from South Dakota. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have, we're rooted in the same culture in a lot of ways. And when, I, when I'm out there, and I, when I'm with the Dalai Lama, you know, when I'm with Deng Xiaoping in Beijing, or when I'm with... Uh, Gorbachev in Russia or when I was, uh, you know, in South Africa when things are going on. I always think, what do they want to know on Main Street in Yankton? What is it that's important to them? Well, I'm doing this, but what is it that I can do that will make their world a little more clear for them? And I think that served me pretty well. Uh, you know, my friends who grew up in the narrow eastern seaboard, for example, are always stunned when we go out to the Midwest and I take them to a coffee shop. Or I take them to a smaller town and I tell them, give me 20 minutes. I'll tell you where the Republicans are having coffee and where the Democrats are having coffee. <laughs> and that is universal. You can find out you know, how the world divides itself. And that's important to be able to know that. Is there um, kind of a follow-up question on that, but you've gotten to cover a lot of great big events and stories in your career was there a and, a, and and people might rate that or you might be able to rate it as like the biggest story and then on down, but is there a story that you covered um, for, and from your personal perspective, like very well and something that you did as a journalist where you said, boy, I really nailed it when I covered that event? Yeah, the Berlin Wall. I owned it. <laughs> you know, there was nobody else there and it was a defining event of the 20th century. And uh, I had a colleague uh, in New York who was our foreign editor. And Jerry said to me, not much going on here. Why don't you go to Germany? They were beginning to spill out of the borders. And I said, that's a good idea. So I went over and I, uh, I got there and there was not much going on. So we started, you know, doing stories about how you could go in and out of East Germany. Now, the next day, there was this big news conference with a guy named Gunter Schabowski. And at the end, he was given a piece of paper and he said, oh, and he, it turns out he misinterpreted it. And he said, uh, uh, members of the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, are allowed now to go out. So the next day, this news conference, Gunter Schabowski says, you can go wherever you want to go. And, and it was like 
lightning had hit this room where we were, and nobody thought, is that true? Can it be true? And I had a, a prior appointment with him. And so I went upstairs, and my producer, this wonderful woman, threw herself against the door to keep other reporters out. I said, say to my camera, what's going on? And he tells it, you know, and then we put that on the air, and the world blew up. You know, and, and it was it was chaotic. At first, the guards thought they had to shoot the people who were going to come across, and I was the only one in the world who had a satellite to get out that night, and it was a clean kill, and it was because, <laughs> it was because others had made preparations. You know, broadcast journalism is not a one-man sport; it's a you know it's a team effort. So everybody did their job, and we were, uh, you know, it, it was the biggest single triumph of my lifetime in terms of a scoop, as you were, changed the world. Now, here's the other part of the story that's fun. So uh, the next day, uh, we continued to work, and I I guess I didn't get a chance to talk to Meredith until I got back. And uh, so when I got back, I said to her, well, what did you think? She said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? She said, we had... Apartment. Our apartment was some work was being done. So Tim Russell had an apartment in New York, and we were using that. So she said, "I was, you know, Tim the Marines, and I went out to a play, and I came home, took the dogs out for a walk, didn't turn on television, and uh, I had no idea <laughs> that this was going on. And the next morning, I went for a walk at the park with the dogs, and everybody came up with tears in their eyes and saying, "My God, you must be so proud! That's the most thrilling thing I've ever seen." She said, "I had no idea what they were talking about." <laughs> That's great. So, all right, well, Tom Brokaw, thank you very much for joining us. Glad um, to do it. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time, especially letting us come into your beautiful home here. So, uh, here's to that. Uh, prospective healing of the country that I hope will. Well, I think that's the most important thing. Come. This is the greatest test for America since the Civil War. That's the last word I'd like to say. There, uh, you know, When we went through the Depression, everybody was in the same boat and, and pulling on the same levers, as it were, to try to survive. World War II was a classic example of America being more than the sum of its parts, how good it was and what it did. The 60s were very divisive in America, but we emerged from them and learned from them. This is a double whammy. We've got a, a fatal disease in the air that people are inhaling, and we don't have control of it yet. And thousands of people are dying. We also have a toxic political environment in which the current president of the United States is doing all that he can to divide the country, not to unite it. And therefore, the challenge is for all of us, not just on the right, although I think more of them have to step up, or on the left by taking advantage of what's going on. We all have to find a way to work together. And there are some truths that are hard, and people are having a hard time facing up to them. But unless we do, you know, this great, great experiment is going to be in a lot of trouble. And uh, there's no need for that. Thank you. End of preach.
telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater. Get yourself some free shipping. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. 